every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. What they've developed is one that is racially and sexually biased. Denouncing so-called critical race theory, what they consider to be woke ideology invading schools. So why are people freaking out? I think the shift into actually naming systemic racism makes people uncomfortable. My parents had a little cottage down in Twisset and his next door neighbor, they would go out and get their newspaper at the same time and they would say hi neighbor to each other. So he decided to incorporate that in his ad. So it became hi neighbor have a gansett. There was a teacher and I remember sitting on her lap and I remember something happened and I blacked out. I cannot recall what happened. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. What should we teach our kids about race and racism? The recent mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, has shown just how urgent that question is. The young shooter claimed he was motivated by a racist ideology called white replacement theory that's been trumpeted by right-wing media and politicians. Those same forces have been raising concerns about critical race theory, or CRT, an academic approach that teaches kids about systemic racism in our society. Conservatives accuse teachers of brainwashing kids. Progressives accuse the conservatives of wanting to whitewash the curriculum. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of young people taking place across the country and here in Rhode Island. Sherry, come in, please. At Gilbert Stewart Middle School in the West End of Providence, Principal Nicole Onye has her hands full. Do you have the application? No. Go in the guidance office and get it now, fast. 92% of her students are economically disadvantaged. Yeah. Can you complete as much as you can tomorrow? 96% are minorities. I'm, I'm proud of you. Gilbert Stewart has long been one of the lowest performing schools in the state. Dr. Onye is trying to change that. Love you. This is a one-star school, and our goal is to make this a two- or three-star school in the next couple of years. And to do that, we have to stay super focused. It's an uphill battle. So this is really important. The building itself crumbling after decades of neglect. The students say when it rains, that hole in the ceiling of the auditorium drips water. Does conflict have to become violence? On the day we recently visited, a group of student leaders in that auditorium were taking part in a training session. The topic, nonviolent conflict resolution, based on the works of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Two different people wanted two different things, but they still worked together to get what they both wanted. Let's shake it up for that. 
This program is one of several ways Gilbert Stewart's trying to re-engage students by inviting them into a deeper conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It helps to stop, solve conflict, because when you go out in the real world, you're going to see different people. And to tell kids that, hey, it's okay that you see different people, that's okay that you don't get along with them right away. Dr. Anya is diversifying the faculty. She's added 20 new teachers of color. The school also offers social justice classes in every grade. We started off as an eighth grade class, but now we have one at every grade level. It's a place where kids can talk about what's going on in the community um, and what they would do differently. You know, we want to hear from them. What do they think the solutions are? A lot of the things that, you know, uh, adults talk about, if you listen to the kids, a lot of times they have some of the greatest solutions to things that adults are fighting over. I think that our schools are going really far off course. Rhode Island Representative Patricia Morgan takes a very different view. And at this time, we will hear House Bill 7539 by Representative Morgan. Representative Morgan, welcome. Morgan has introduced a series of bills at the Rhode Island State House designed to steer Rhode Island public schools away from what she sees as an obsessive focus on race and racism. No child should be accused of being inherently racist or sexist or oppressed or oppressive because of their race, because of their skin color. That we've forgotten what the purpose of education is, and to me that's preparing children for successful adult lives. In a diverse society. Absolutely. A multicultural society. But, but the, the building blocks are the same, right? Reading, writing, comprehension, knowledge base. Morgan says since state standards changed in 2019, schools across the state are adopting misguided curricula. What they've developed is one that is racially and sexually uh, biased. And by that I mean all of the old textbooks, they're gone. And instead what has come into classrooms is activist literature. It's not literature that gives children the full spectrum of what American society is. It is centered on black and Hispanic culture or experience. So that's what makes it activist. She insists these new curricula, among other things, shame white kids and patronize minority kids by focusing too much on the history of racism in America. I'm a black child. I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm black. I can never get ahead because I'm a victim. It's, a, it's the skin color, no matter how hard I work. If I look at you and I say, you're an oppressor, is that fair? Who are no, you oppressing? absolutely not. Who are you oppressing? Tell me. And is a little nine-year-old a victim just by his very presence? They are to be judged and respected as individuals, not members of an identity group. Morgan, a Republican, has plenty of firepower in her corner. If you object in any way to the current obsession with race, the one subject no normal person really wants to obsess over, then you yourself are obsessed with race and you must be stopped because you're dangerous. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Conservatives, including cable news personality Tucker Carlson, have been sounding alarm bells ahead of the midterms. Oh, why? Well, it contradicts everything that Martin Luther King fought for. It's hatred, Marxist ideology, and it places the child in a loophole of oppression, making them feel as a victim. I can't stand for that. 
denouncing so-called critical race theory, what they consider to be woke ideology invading schools. What, what does critical race theory mean? What is it? Senator, my understanding is that critical race theory is, um, it is an academic theory that is about the ways in which uh, race interacts with um, various institutions. I get death threats over it. Yes. Jennifer Bergevine teaches at Barrington really High School. I teach ninth and 11th, and the 11th grade course is Advanced Placement, Language, and Composition. How does race factor into your teaching curriculum? Well, heavily in language and composition. Um, it's a rhetoric study, so everything we read is nonfiction. We stick with what's happening in the world. The whole curriculum is designed around four social justice topics, and one is race. It's a very different population of kids than at Gilbert Stewart Middle, and that's not just because they're older in high school. But Barrington is not the most diverse community in the world. Not exactly what we're known for. Is critical race theory a factor in what you teach? <laughs> it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's a factor. I think there's Is it an approach that you use? I didn't know what critical race theory was until people started talking about it being bad. And then I realized that I guess I kind of teach critical race theory. I just, but it's really more about multiple perspectives. Um, so when we get into the race unit, we start by what are our own personal experiences with race. As individual, the students talk about it, they do some reflection, we watch TED Talks. TED Talks, like this one. I went through a mental shift in my perception of literature. I realized that people like me, girls with skin the color of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. And I give I them sets of texts that they pick from. They could choose to read A Hope in the Unseen, which is about a young man growing up in D.C. who's a young man of color in a really rough school, and he wants to go to Brown University. And it's his story, and the kids love it because he gets to Brown, and they hear about Thayer Street and all those things. And what they then come back to the table with is a reading journal where they keep track of what stands out to them, what they're confused by, what they want to learn more about, and they meet in groups to talk about what they've learned. It doesn't sound that different from English class when I was in high school right. eons ago. I mean, I remember <laughs> reading Invisible Man by yes. Ralph Ellison, which, who's a Harlem amazing Renaissance book. writer, an amazing writer, who's writing about race and identity and, mm -hmm. and how he feels invisible. Correct. So why are people freaking out? I think the shift into actually naming systemic racism and saying like this is a part of our history as, as a country makes people uncomfortable. There's a sense that at least part of what people object to is the idea that teachers are presenting an unflattering view of America, unpatriotic. Pop quiz. Hmm. Thomas Jefferson, what's the most important thing for our kids to understand about him? He was a founding father. He was there at the beginning of our country, and he set it on the course for us to be a democracy. Um, there was never before then a democracy in the world. The fact that he was a slave owner, relevant or not relevant in your view? You know, I, it, it, listen, he was a slave owner. 
Was that the only thing he is? Is that why we should be disparaging his memory no, but when and somebody, his contributions? I'm not saying disparaging, but understanding that his People vision had limits, down. didn't it? Okay, well, we can defame his memory, and that's fine, if that's what's important. And I guess that's what I think is destructive, because he did so much more. Ask that same question to Jennifer Bergevine. What is it important to teach our kids about Thomas Jefferson? The facts. You know, I mean, we can't, you can't take a person and just say, okay, I'm only going to look at this part of them or her or them. We need to look at the whole person. Warts and all. Yes. We are focusing on warts and not on the goodness of America. If you constantly give kids these larger than life figures who never made a mistake, that's not real. Half of life is learning to kind of rectify the good with the bad. Unfortunately, with, with that a group of people who want to push this ideology, this narrative, they give us no redemption. There's no redemption for America. Just as you're concerned about that ideology infecting the curriculum, isn't it possible that the reaction to it also politicizes the curriculum in an unhealthy way for our kids? I mean, our kids are caught in the middle, right? So what you suggest that I allow the, this racialized and sexualized curriculum to go unchallenged? If that bill, the latest bill passed, I don't know, we would have to completely restructure advanced placement language and literature and pull out whole units of instruction. If we can't talk about race, that's a unit of study. So we would have to reframe the whole, the whole thing, which can be done. Um, but the, to the, it will be to the detriment of the students. I don't think anybody's wrong or right in this conversation. I think everybody has their own perspective. I can only speak from my perspective having been in schools for many, many years. Um, it's our job to empower our students, no matter what color they are, whether they're black, white, Spanish, male, female, doesn't matter. We don't want any student to feel that they're victimized. One thing both sides agree on is that a good education is the best way to give kids of all races the opportunities they need to succeed. And that if we as a society share Dr. King's dream, we still have some work to do. I think it's really important, and I think people don't stress this enough, that if we keep doing what we've been doing, the same result's gonna happen. Eighth grader Naya Asamagasie told us the future depends on getting this right. I think that Gilbert Stewart is doing good things and Trust. we need to shine light on that. And we need, we need more help. Now we bring you a portion of a Rhode Island PBS original documentary by contributing producer and director Dorothy Dickey. Breaking Good explores the escalation of the incarceration of women in the United States since the war on drugs was declared back in the 1980s. Tonight, we hear stories from two New England women who spent years behind bars and have turned their lives around. Our stories are part of a larger picture. This is why this work is so important. We made history this year. We launched our first subsidized housing program that housed 18 formerly incarcerated individuals and provided them housing vouchers to reunite with their families after incarceration. 
Every time my phone rings, it's not good news. This work is not easy to do. But when you have a chance to reunite a child, a mom, a dad, and put somebody who has been homeless for 10, 20 years, um, it, it makes it all worth it. I grew up in Foxbury, Massachusetts. I had a nice childhood, actually. I grew up in a, a middle-class family. I can't complain. We had a good upbringing. I was an honorable student. I always had good grades, but my conduct was awful. <laughs> I ended up getting into fights in, in high school a lot, and me and my friends would all skip school. We would go to my house, and we would smoke weed. Uh, and drink. My first experience with drugs was when I was 13. And so you experiment with things, your very risky behavior when you're, you know, at that age. Be ready. ready? Go ahead, ready? Ready? Can I count to three? Everyone say new beginnings. New beginnings. One, two, three. New beginnings. This is a long time coming. When women come back into communities, that they actually have a home to come to, that they have the dignity and peace and love and support they deserve, and that we are taking care of our people in our communities. And so what we have today with the New Beginnings Grand Opening is a safe space for people to come to, and we all owe our thanks and love and admiration to Ms. Stacy Boyden. <laughs> I'm the 11th child of 12. Seven brothers, five girls. Growing up was amazing. It was just magical. And on the other side, dysfunctional. My two older brothers were drug addicted and um, in and out of trouble, and police would always come. And then there was me, who was problematic, always you know, high. I was 11 when I first started smoking marijuana, and I want to say 12 or 13 when I first sniffed cocaine. You know, my brothers were selling it. It was more like the lifestyle I was suffering because there was a teacher, and I remember sitting on her lap, and I remember something happened, and I blacked out. I cannot recall what happened. Back in hindsight now, I feel like something happened sexually. I feel like that's where my early childhood trauma come from. I started being a problematic child. I was withdrawing, you know. Um, I really couldn't accelerate in school. I just felt so incompetent and my comprehension level wasn't good. And so, once I got to JP High, it was drugs. I started popping mescaline and microdots and um, sniffing Percocet. All these years later, I never knew that I even existed. And that's just how my life went. Not feeling like I even existed, I just floated. And my senior year, I was sexually assaulted, and 
that took me over the edge. I didn't know how to explain it to anybody. I didn't know how to explain about the young childhood sexual assault or, you know, the young adolescent sexual assault. I didn't know what mental illness was. And so I started drugging heavily and it was causing a lot of problems in the household. And eventually I started running away and staying out and getting myself in trouble until my first incarceration. That was in 1982. Our thanks to Dorothy Dickey. You can see the full documentary right here on Rhode Island PBS. That's June 17th at 8 p.m. We now turn to a story about a legendary local beer and its roller coaster history, one that spans more than 130 years. That beloved brew, of course, is our own Narragansett beer. Rhode Island PBS and producer-director John Smith have been meticulously researching the story of Narragansett Brewing Company to put forward the definitive account of the beer maker following its early roots, its rise in popularity, and massive presence in the state to the company's near demise after brewing operations were uprooted to the Midwest, and finally, its resurgence and return to Rhode Island. Here's an excerpt from the original production titled, Hi Neighbor. By the early 1930s, Narragansett was still in operation, but a lack of investment was beginning to show. By about 1931, they needed to really modernize the facility. They needed to bring it up to snuff if it was going to survive after Prohibition ended. To make that happen, Narragansett management sought out help from Rudolph Heffenreffer Jr., a veteran within the New England brewing industry. Rudolph Heffenreffer II, or Rudolph Heffenreffer Jr., wound up with, I think, five or six separate breweries that he owned, most of which were in Fall River, Massachusetts. He also was an investor, an entrepreneur, um, you know, a capitalist in every sense of the word, who was acquiring tin, zinc, and silver mines out west. He owned the rights to collect all of the tolls off of the Mount Hope Bridge. He seems to have been somebody who was able to turn almost anything he touched into money. Rudolph Jr. agreed to the proposal, assuming full control of the company as president and chairman of the board. He provided the smarts, the know-how, as well as the financial backing in order to get the brewery up to speed so that when Prohibition ended, the brewery was able to go full force in the highly competitive market of producing legal beer in Rhode Island. On December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified, ushering in a new era for American alcohol production. Earlier that same year, with repeal on the horizon, Narragansett proactively converted its main water supply from the artisan wells to the newly constructed Situate Reservoir. When you pull water from a pond or a natural source, that water quality, along with the quantity, fluctuates quite a bit throughout the seasons and throughout the year. The water now at the Citrus Reservoir is very steady in terms of all those parameters, color, pH, alkalinity, bacteria, nutrients. So from a manufacturing point of view, having that consistency is very uh, important. Access to the reservoir, along with needed facility upgrades, helped to drastically increase production. By the summer of 1934, the brewery was producing more than 7.5 million bottles of beer a month. A few years later, the campus expanded again with the purchase of the trolley barn on Cranston Street, which would be used as a warehouse. 
The 30s was also the start of Narragansett's greatest marketing era, led by the newly hired Jack Haley. He used to say about ads, he said, and I think of this every time I see an ad on television, the best ads are ones that you remember what the ad is about. He then, oh, was it advertising for a small company in Stonington, Connecticut, and then went with another company, and then in 1933 went with Narragansett and became their advertising manager, they called it. By the mid-1940s, Haley introduced the brand's legendary call to action, inspired by a daily routine. My parents had a little cottage down in Tewissett, and his next-door neighbor, they would go out and get their newspaper at the same time, and they would say hi neighbor to each other. So he decided to incorporate that in his ad. So it became Hi Neighbor, Have a Gansett. In addition to Haley's talents, the Heffenreffers briefly employed a Dartmouth College classmate of Rudolph Jr.'s son, an eager young artist named Theodore Geisel, who later in life would adopt the pen name Dr. Seuss. Our thanks to John Smith. And you can see this Rhode Island PBS original documentary, Hi Neighbor, right here on Rhode Island PBS on May 25th at 8 p.m. Finally, Lila Alphonse is here to talk about COVID-19 and the new surge that is upon us. Central Falls seems to once again be serving as the canary in the coal mine when it comes to COVID-19 in Rhode Island. The number of infections there is on the rise. At some testing sites, the positivity rate is 25%. The tiny city, of course, is by far the most densely populated area of our state. But we need to consider the fact that Rhode Island is the third most densely populated state in the country and the highly contagious virus could easily climb in other parts of the United States. The Department of Health in mid-May said Rhode Islanders should expect moderate increases and decreases in COVID-19 infection levels over the coming months. That includes the summer, when take it outside is a directive that is easier to follow. But it also means that large gatherings and events could become super spreaders, especially now that mask mandates and capacity restrictions have been lifted. This month, Rhode Island had the highest rate of COVID-19 cases in the country. Rhode Island is also the state with the highest vaccination rate in the country, with 83% of residents fully vaccinated. If 83% sounds high, that's because it is. But if that high percentage made people assume magical herd immunity was achieved and COVID was over forever, that's where they're mistaken. Vaccines don't convey absolute immunity. They offer protection. And when dealing with a nasty virus and its mutations, that protection isn't perfect, but it's enough to keep more and more people alive, even if they get sick. The health department told the Globe that COVID-19 is endemic disease in Rhode Island. When a disease is endemic, that means that it is regularly found in a certain area or among a certain population. It does not necessarily mean that it's extremely mild or that we can be complacent about how we cope with it. We're in a better position to cope now than we were before. Unlike in 2020 and 2021, health providers now have a better sense of how to treat it, at-home testing kits abound, and vaccines are readily available. But the best way to protect yourself and the people around you is to get boosted, wear a mask, and yes, take it outside. Our thanks to Lila Alphonse.
That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Wright. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night. <laughs>